are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Abrogatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 351 of the text, paragraph 11, towards the bottom of the page. And if you remember, we've been speaking over the past weeks of stability, both in terms of where one lives, but stability of heart and and, uh, of one's thoughts, that external stability often helps to foster a kind of internal stability, that often we will seek to change uh, our circumstances, to change the the place uh, where we live, hoping that it will create a better environment for us and make us happier or more holy. And the monks were not exempt from this. There are a multitude of temptations that would uh, lead them to want to enter into a life of greater solitude and often prematurely without having uh, their hearts be purified through the testing of living the common life. And so enter into the life of solitude still struggling with the passions and uh, which is a dangerous thing you know to, to seek to lead the spiritual life on one's own in isolation and um, but i think it speaks to us living in the world that the, the, when we think of the the cell as being one's heart uh, that this is where the, the the battle is to be waged and uh, often we will want to change our circumstances, not necessarily uh, leave our given vocation or move to a different place, uh, but simply to change what we're doing or to leave the, the, the silence of prayer uh, because we feel agitated and, uh, or we can begin to avoid certain circumstances where we are being put to the test uh, simply by being around other individuals. And so not really allowing ourselves to be purified of the passions that we struggle with. And so I think a lot of what we will be reading here in this hypothesis, the remaining paragraphs and the next will speak to how we live our day-to-day life and how we can't avoid uh, dealing with the passions that lie within. And uh, we already know that we can avoid that through a multitude of distractions. Uh, But uh, there are also specific temptations that come to us uh, through the evil one, through various thoughts that will draw us away from where we need to be, uh, either in terms of our prayer uh, or uh, how we are engaging others in our day-to-day life. We can begin to simply want to avoid things and individuals, and uh, we can want to move to a greater solitude, uh, and it can simply be avoidance of reality rather than than moving toward reality and embracing it in a deeper fashion through the life of prayer and intimacy with God. And so again, we're on page 351, paragraph 11. Do not seek to please yourself, and you will not hate your brother. Do not indulge in self-love, and you will love God. If you have chosen to live with spiritual brothers, renounce your will from the moment you pass through the doors of the monastery, for in no other way will you be able to live at peace, either with God or with those with whom you dwell. 
So pretty strong statement there that once one enters the door of the monastery, that what is key is setting aside one's will or willfulness. And uh, because living in community is on a daily basis going to require that we let go of uh, uh, kind of self-judgment or private judgment, I should say, and uh, that we're going to have to be patient with others. We are going to have to hold our tongues uh, in conversations and, and not simply seek to push our way through circumstances or manipulate situations to get people to do what we want. And so to be able to live in peace with others, but also to maintain uh, peace within our hearts and peace in our relationship with God, means to let go of a kind of selfish pride or selfish willfulness. And this is something that's not easy to do. And I think uh, this is why the fathers are so stark in their writing about this, that set aside your will as you enter into the door, take it off like a cloak. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to persevere in this life. Uh, now, this doesn't mean setting aside one's own personality or identity. It means setting apart, setting aside that kind of selfishness that so often can drive uh, our actions and our interactions with others. We can, even in a monastery where they live a very rigorous life and they don't have much in the way of material goods, uh, they can still find themselves driven by it and irritated by others or clinging to something as insignificant as a pencil, or uh, I guess a book wouldn't be insignificant, insignificant in their days because they would have been quite, quite valuable, but uh, could find themselves fighting over small, small things or being irritated over small things, the way a person eats, the way a person breathes, you know, all these kind of things can become a source of agitation and irritation. Number 12, it is characteristic of the man who embraces vainglory or is attached to anything material to be vexed at people over transitory things or to feel resentment or hatred towards them or to be enslaved by shameful thoughts. Whereas all of these things are alien to the God-loving soul. So there are so many things that can come to mind that uh, create a dis-ease uh, within the heart. Uh, and whatever the source of that might be, that's going to affect the way uh, that we look at others and our capacity to love them. Uh, and this is all the evil one really needs to do is to create a kind of agitation within the mind and heart uh, and do it in just a subtle way, enough to make us lose stillness and silence within and make it very uncomfortable for us to be either with people or alone. There's an interesting little saying in the, the next hypothesis where an elder says, uh, a monk could live in his cell for one, uh, 100 years and still never learn to live in his cell that he could live an incredibly long life and still not learn the lessons of what the cell would teach, which would be silence and stillness. And for all of us, uh, you know, we can live a long life and still not know uh, who we are, our identity in Christ, uh, the, the kingdom that dwells within us, the spirit that animates us in our life in Christ, we can be oblivious to that reality because we become so distracted by material things or the, the weight that we often give to certain circumstances that these can drive us uh, in our relationships with others to the point that we lose sight of God altogether let alone uh, fall into uh, things like uh, hatred and resentment towards others. Letter H from the Gerontacon. A brother who lived in a Cenobitic monastery was bothered by thoughts of leaving, 
So one day he took a piece of paper, sat down and wrote on it all the reasons that his thoughts were telling him to leave his community. After enumerating them, he finally wrote a question to himself. Can you endure all these things? And as if responding to his question, he wrote below it, yes, in the name of Jesus Christ, the son of God, I will endure them. He folded up the paper and tied it up in his belt. So an interesting little uh, practice, you know, to a little reminder, a physical reminder that what is important is to be able to make one's way through the moment, to turn to God in that moment, to, to cling to virtue, to cling to the grace of God. Can I endure this for today? We often are looking to the future, which will magnify things in our mind. Oh my gosh, if I have to endure living with this person for the rest of my life, I'll slip my wrist right now. Uh, and, uh, and so the idea of living uh, that kind of life can seem like misery to us, or at least that's what our imagination does with it. And so he simply presents himself with this reminder, you know, can, can you live this? Can you endure, persevere through one day? And then to pull it out and look at it if he finds himself struggling. Uh, sort of an interesting scenario develops, though, on this. God doesn't uh, nor the evil one may make it easy for him in that regard. Whenever he was tempted by one of those thoughts that previously assailed him and was bothered by thoughts of leaving his monastic community, he would run off by himself, take out the piece of paper and read it. And when he would come to the words, in the name of Jesus Christ, the son of God, I will endure. He would say to himself, you did not make your promise to man, but to God. And at once he found relief. Always acting in this way, the monk remained unperturbed when for any reason he felt agitation in his soul. And so what a beautiful, simple reminder that what we take up uh, in our day-to-day -day life is not simply for others, but more importantly for God. And, uh, and this clarifies and can clarify things for us uh, in the moment, uh, the, the reason that we are embracing it, but also this, this, where our strength comes from to endure. And in doing this, he was able to remain uh, not, not only within the monastery, but unperturbed by all the things that he experienced on a day-to-day -day -day basis. And so this is, you know, part of the ascetic life is creating a habit of mind a habit of thought, a habit of virtue. So often what we struggle with in our day-to-day -day life is a certain turn of mind that becomes deeply ingrained uh, within us and certain fun fundamental uh, ideas and thoughts that guide and direct our life. And changing them can be no easy thing. And, uh, and when we are engaged also in a spiritual battle or when our prayer becomes weak, uh, it can become even more difficult. Uh, those uh, habits can be very elastic. You know, we can move away from them and uh, something can trigger them and we snap right back to that same way of thinking about our life and about others. And so creating this habit of thought and habit of virtue is a great part of the ascetic life. And much of what we are doing, our prayer life, our fasting, is meant to establish this stillness. This is why they're called the Hesychastic Fathers or Hesychatic Fathers. Uh, Hesychasm is stillness. So those who foster the stillness of mind and heart and then move the mind into the heart uh, where there one encounters God and seek to remain there in the peace of Christ, in the peace of the kingdom. And so to create a kind of habit of mind where we stay in that stillness, yearn for it, and are very aware of the things that draw us away from it. Now, here's where the real test comes to him. When the other brothers noticed what the monk was doing and how he passed his life in peace by reading the piece of paper and finding themselves frequently disturbed, 
They were aroused by the influence of the evil one to envy and hatred of the brother. They went to the abbot and said, this brother is a sorcerer and his magic powers are in his belt. For this reason, we cannot live with him, expel him or us from, from here. So interesting, you know, envy over virtue, the fact that a person never gets perturbed, never loses his peace, never gets anger, can become a source of anger and frustration for others. Isn't that a terrible thing that we can get angry at others because they're so peaceful? Uh, and uh, but it it does happen, and you know that some, somebody could get up and scream at you for not uh, being drawn into this great state of agitation. And they can interpret it as uh, uh, either a kind of uh, aloofness perhaps, or, um, or a, a critique of them, or in this sense, they even reduce it to sorcery, you know, as if it is something from the evil one. And so they want the abbot to drive him out or to drive all of them out. It's either him or us, basically, they, they tell the abbot. They give him an ultimatum. The abbot, not discounting a plot of the enemy, for he knew the brother's humility and piety, said to them, go away and pray, and I will pray. And after three days, I will give you my answer. That night, as the brother was sleeping, the abbot approached him quietly and undid his belt. And after reading the paper, he redid the belt and departed. When three days had passed, the brothers came to the abbot to hear his answer. He summoned the brother in question and asked him, why are you scandalizing the brethren? He immediately threw himself to the ground and replied, I have sinned, forgive me and pray for me. The abbot said to the brothers, what did you say about this brother? They answered, he is a sorcerer and his magic powers are in his belt. Then cast out his magic, said the abbot. They rushed to loose his belt, and the brother did not, but the brother did not let them. The abbot said, cut it. After cutting it, they found a piece of paper in it. The abbot gave it to one of the deacons, ordering him to stand on a high spot and read it, so that the evil one who had sowed this slander might be put to shame. When he read the paper, the final words, in the name of Jesus Christ, I will endure all these things, the brothers hearing this out of shame did not know what to do. They made a prostration before the abbot saying, we have sinned. Do not make prostrations to me, he replied, but to God and the brother about whom you spoke falsely, that he may forgive you. They did so. The abbot said to the brother, let us pray to God that he may forgive them. And they prayed for the brothers. So lovely story and, uh, and so true, I think, to the common life and what can emerge, whether it's on, on a small scale, even within, uh, within marriages or a small community or a large uh, community like Cenobium, that uh, the evil one can work in these ways, that here in a heroic fashion, the monk sought to live in peace with his brothers and not allow himself to be tempted to leave the community in the face of his own weaknesses and his own frustrations. And yet this is accounted as being something evil and uh, to the point that they want to, to drive him out. And the abbot being discerning is, is able to pick up what's going on, at least enough to know that there could be a plotting here that the evil, had, or I'm sorry, that the abbot had the purity of heart that allowed him to have discernment enough to explore the issue and to be aware of the thought that there could be plotting involved uh, because there was this kind of group think that began to emerge, which is often the case that when there is this kind of extreme movement uh, in attitudes and within groups of people like this, uh, then one has to be very cautious and almost suspect that something is driving uh, that 
the, that is not the truth, but rather a simulation of the truth or a partial truth or an untruth altogether. And in order to uh, create some sort of destruction. And, uh, and so he, he makes them read it. And it's interesting, it, it's reminiscent almost of, again of that scene of Moses in the desert making them gaze at the serpent uh, by, uh, that were stinging them for their disobedience for God. You know, he has this deacon stand up and read it aloud, you know, place it out there in the full light of truth so that they might hear with their own ears what they were condemning. And how it was not only a sin against charity, but it was a sin against God himself, that the monk was uh, saying that in the name of Jesus Christ, I will endure these things. And so they were condemning what was of God and, and from God. And it's similar things that we see in the scribes and, and the Pharisees in their response to Christ, you know, attributing to Beelzebul what was something that came from God. And so this virtue that clearly arose from the grace of God in this monk uh, was attributed to something quite evil. Ambrose writes, there are those who say that you are lukewarm if you don't get upset about bad stuff happening in the world. Absolutely. You know, I think when, unless you are in a constant state of rage about what is going on in the world, or what is going on within the life of the church or about liturgy or about what this or that theologian or said or what the Pope said, uh, unless you are focused on that and with the kind of intensity, you lack, uh, you lack a love of the church or you lack a love of God or you lack zeal. And uh, I think that's the, the incredible temptation of our day to have people become so focused upon issues, so much so that they lose sight of the person of Christ. And those issues can be of some weight and significance. Certainly liturgy, for example, is at the heart of our life as Christian men and women. Uh, and yet the evil one can, can use this as a tool that brings about division and hatred resentment, you know, hoping that certain people will die in order that other people might take their place who have a different view of the church or a different view of liturgy. And so it can become uh, a kind of mental disorder uh, uh, at that point. Uh, and, uh, and if you, you don't participate in it, then there's, there's something wrong with you. And, you know, this can uh, stretch into many different areas of the spiritual life as a whole. I, I, there was a woman who, uh, she's since passed away, but uh, she came to these groups in reading about the fathers and about the spiritual life as a whole. And there was, you know, she was old enough that she was around when the charismatic movement emerged. And she said that she often felt uncomfortable because when she went to the groups, she couldn't speak in tongues and didn't speak in tongues. And so wondered if there was something wrong with her, that it was almost this expectation that this would happen as a matter of course. And, uh, and in similar ways, you know, we can want to fit make people fit into our particular vision of things. And often our vision can be myopic, you know, for one reason or another, because of the particular sins that we, we struggle with. And, uh, you know, priests have to be incredibly careful about this too, when people are coming for spiritual counsel or spiritual direction. The idea is not to create a mini-me, you know, someone who does everything that you do in the spiritual life. It might not be appropriate for, for them, uh, given their station in life, or even where they are in their, their spiritual life. It, it simply might not be where God is directing them. What you want to help people do is to be attentive to uh, the, the guidance of the spirit in their life. Uh, certainly in the context of the broader spiritual tradition, 
You know, we're part of a, the living body and a living tradition. Uh, but even within that, we have to allow for the movement of the spirit who, uh, that will guide people where he wills uh, and in accord with their needs and what will sanctify them. And, you know, I think what we see in the beauty in, especially in certain ages, uh, is this kind of holy genius that emerges that is through this action of the spirit. And recently, I was reading a little book recently by Cardinal Seurat, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the title of it at the moment, but he, he was talking about zeal and how important that is within the spiritual life. And he says that, you know, that there can be those even within the church who seek to contain that zeal or oppose it uh, in one way or another, whether it's one's devotion to the liturgy or life of prayer or, you know, the spiritual, spiritual life that they're engaging in, that, uh, that a kind of envy can emerge. And he says, you know, the, there are obviously wrong ways to respond to that, you know, to become agitated, angry, and resentful towards others. Uh, but we are nonetheless to hold on to that zeal and love for God and, uh, you know, not, not to the point of disobedience, but to live out fully what the church and what the gospel calls us uh, to do in our day-to-day -day life. And, uh, and so inevitably, you know, we are going to face things even, even like this, and I'm so glad this example was in, in here, uh, that, you know, somebody is being criticized and uh, envied in such a deep way that an entire community wants to exile him, get rid of him, and even gives this ultimatum to the abbot, him or us. You know, the arrogance and the pride in the monastery is so great that it swayed all of them. And uh, this should be a kind of wake-up call for us, because our pride can, can blind us. And we talked a week or so ago, I think, about suspending judgment and how important that is. You know, even when we see things that seem clearly to us to be sinful, or we hear things that don't strike us uh, as being right or orthodox or that, that we suspend judgment knowing that we might not be hearing everything or seeing everything and that we seek to interpret things from a position of generosity, of love toward the other rather than suspicion. And we can see here in this example, the entire community turns on this monk with an incredible suspicion, no generosity there towards him at all. And, uh, I, you know, in our day and age, and it's been my experience, this is one of the more subtle things that I think, uh, but most destructive things within the life of the church. Uh, I was reading an old quote from Pope Benedict, uh, you know, uh, was before he was Pope, but, he, you know, he talks about the, the struggles often arising from within the church you know, Christians battling against Christians. There's a kind of animosity there that undermines the life of the church as a whole. You know, it's not like we're being attacked from the outside. And, you know, as a priest, I can say most of the grief that I've experienced has not been from atheists and has not been from even those who are the most anti-Catholic. You know, the most suffering I've endured has been within within the church. And probably people would look at me and say the same thing. You know, that Father David has been a thorn in my side uh, for ages. Uh, but, you know, so this, this little story, I think, is really important. You know, that even as religious, we become really vulnerable to this idea that we are protecting what is virtuous. We are protecting what is true and good and holy. And we can place ourselves in that position and we can take for ourselves what belongs only to God, a prerogative that only belongs to God. And here we see an entire community do it. 
you know, they judged this monk, you know, as being a sorcerer. And, uh, you know, if we uproot anything from our heart, it should, should be this. And to struggle for that, uh, you know, suspending of, of judgment. So stay away from internet discussions, basically of any kind, but especially religious or political. So any other comments on what we've talked about so far? Okay. Number two, an elder said that the ancient fathers did not lightly change their place of residence unless one of three things happened to them. If they had a neighbor who had a grievance against them arising from envy, that is, who harbored a grudge, and after making every effort to mollify him, they could not bring him round. Or if many people would visit them, offering them different kinds of things that they were obliged to accept or praising them excessively, or if they fell into the temptation of fornication because there were women living in the vicinity. If any of these three things occur, it is not unreasonable for a monk to withdraw from one place to another. This does not apply to the cenobitic monks, but to those who live in solitude. So he's even speaking here, he gives us a number of reasons where it would be acceptable to move one's place of residence. And, but speaking particularly to anchorites here, that if you're living in a, among a group of individuals, if envy arises that breeds this kind of resentment and hatred and a grudge that you cannot undo over the course of time, that you make efforts to uh, build bridges there and it uh, does not lessen but only grows over the course of time, that that would be one reason, you know, that it's a place of an animosity and of agitation uh, that one is not able to overcome. Uh, the other is if too many people are visiting and so the solitude then is threatened. And we've mentioned this before, that monks would often be sought out because of their wisdom and sought out for counsel. And uh, people would often bring things with them, you know, and, uh, and so this could be an immense, certainly distraction from the fundamental aspects of the vocation. And then certainly living in a situation where one could be tempted away from their, their vocation to the celibate life, that, you know, that they were surrounded uh, by too many women, you know, certainly those who are living in the, in the desert who've stripped themselves of every material comfort could be very vulnerable in that regard then uh, to the desires of the flesh. And so may have to move deeper in, into the desert, into solitude. And so it's even here for anchorites, you know, it's a, a very limited uh, number of things that would lead a person uh, to, to change one's place of residence. And uh, then I would think after great council and for those living in the Cenobium, uh, you know, Climacus as well as the fathers of the Evercatinos see it as the place like grade school in the monastic life. That's where, where you learn the ABCs of spiritual battle. And so you don't want to leave there and run into solitude without having the mind and the heart formed after long years of trial. It's a much different way of looking at vocations. You know, in our day and age, we often, you know, I just saw an advert, I don't want to be overly critical here, but I just saw an advertisement for like vocations. And it was uh, about, you know, seminarians going to a, an amusement park. Uh, and which is no, not a bad thing, you know, like a social event or whatever. But it was like a little video of, you know, a seminarian spinning around in a chair, you know, as a way of preparing himself for the spinning around on the rides kind of thing. And I think, oh my gosh, 
you know, is this the image of the pursuit of the priesthood or religious life that we are putting forward? Are we reduced to this? Is this what we have to communicate or alone? And when everything that I've read over the past 30 years tells me that we are entering into trial and that there's nothing within the gospel that tells us that we are going to be embraced by the world. In fact, just the opposite. You'll be hated by all. The people will think that they are serving God by putting you to death. And, you know, we often try to make the, the faith or religious life and I think this is true of marriage as well, you know, because there is this natural attraction between men and women on a, on a level of sentimentality, sensuality, you know, that draws them together, romance, which is a, part, a natural part of it. But, you know, what allows a couple to endure over the course of time is really the formation of the mind and the heart, the depth of their faith that allows them to deal with some of the same things that we're reading about here. The struggles that existed in those relationships between the monks happen between husbands and wives as well. What is going to help you persevere in that relationship and maintain you know, this uh, generosity of spirit toward the other and not become perturbed about the day's, you know, day-to-day things and not want to, to run away you know, screaming, saying, I got to get out of here. <laughs> and uh, so, there, you know, we focus too much on talents and abilities and skills, you know, these worldly things as if those are indicative of what kind of spiritual servant of the church this individual is going to be. Not that those things can't be used for the good, but what is most important in everything we're reading is humility of heart, purity, charity, compassion, mercy towards others. And you know, these are formed in, in, in us in a much different way. And, the, and they're far greater than what we're called to is far greater than the natural virtues that, or temperament that a person might have. And we seem to emphasize that a lot. And I see that in the seminaries too, you know, that young men are evaluated by all of these tools, uh, you know, psychological, uh, and then peer evaluation, faculty evaluation, you know, self-evaluation, all, all these different kinds of things. And again, I don't want to diminish the significance of those things, but sometimes what is most essential, uh, their purity of heart, their love for God, uh, you know, what what is really going to make them a a good servant uh, of their people, a faithful priest is not emphasized. And uh, often those tools are used as looking for a red flag. And I get that too. You know, anything that might emerge or might be an impediment or an obstacle that one has to be attentive to that. But if that becomes, you know, if the formation becomes such that that is the focus, then the same kind of group think that we see enacted here in the story can take place in the the way that we go about formation of others. And here we see an abbot having, you know, the whole communities at his door saying, get rid of this guy, it's him or us, you know? And, you know, I could imagine a rector of the seminary, you know, you know, saying, okay, this guy is gone. You know, he's obviously a disturber of the peace, you know, or there's something going on here if, if he's not aware of this this kind of subtle deceit. And so the stillness that we want to foster should be something that allows us to slow down 
to look at what's going on within our own hearts as well as to listen to what God is saying to us and to see if we are looking at the other with this kind of generosity. John Ingram writes, I've seen some of the psycho psychological evaluations that are asked of candidates for the priesthood. They are truly bizarre and disturbing and disconcerting. <laughs> uh, they're, they, uh, you know, I've seen them and they have a certain purpose, uh, but they are very limited in scope. They, you know, they might reveal obvious, you know, things that are problematic. You know, we, we used to do this in, uh, with married couples. It was uh, sort of, it was, it was called focus. It was like an inventory of a couple's views on different things. And, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd have to tell people, you know, this isn't pass fail. You know, this is just to be an instrument for us to have discussion. You know, if there is this wide variance in certain areas, what's, what is important is not so much the wide variance in your views as if you've discussed these things, that they're on your radar, that you know about them. And, uh, and some of the questions are, sort of out there, but you know, if you, you know, have somebody that says, I, I'm afraid of my future spouse, or my, I'm concerned about my future spouse's use of illegal drugs, you know, that, that's kind of flag that would go up and as a priest, you would want to explore. But, you know, th these are incredibly limited. And sometimes I think they're given a weight uh, when we were talking about the mystery of the human person, and I think this is why, and not to digress too far, is why I'd, I, I uh, moved more towards the study of, of psychoanalysis over the course of time, depth psychology, because even though Freud was an atheist, and this created this rift between psychology and the church and dialogue for a hundred years almost, uh, that he he respected the mystery of the human person that each person was unique that even though there were these co common commonalities common aspects to personality that each person is formed in a different way and have have different influence and often our actions and our and our personalities are multi-determined by all these different realities and so this is why analysis would take so long, because how do you enter into that unless you are suspending judgment and listening to what the person is saying, even over the course of years? And I think we've moved to looking for these instruments that give uh, quicker and quicker results. And, uh, and you know, so a personality inventory is not going to reveal to us the depths of the mystery of the person. And often this is ignored in seminary life and in religious communities that are examining potential vocations. There are people that I know who have great wounds, who've gone through hell and back in their life and might be a little older. I'm sorry, oops. Might, might be a little bit older. And so, and maybe outside the range of a, where a community would accept them in terms of age even. And yet, com and communities will pass on them uh, because they're not in their twenties and they're not so easily, they, they fear that they would not be so easily formed, but they're passing on these individuals that have this depth of faith that is incredible. And it's precisely because they've gone through often these horrendous trials, they might bear wounds, but that doesn't mean that they aren't, they wouldn't make an excellent monk or nun or priest. In fact, they might be more, more faithful and more compassionate to the sufferings of others. You know, the more that we build up, you know, individuals coming into uh, this role within the life of the church, you know, as if Somehow they're, again, you know, I mentioned, you know, princes of the church, how, you know, cardinals were often referred to, you know, it creates this self image that can be destructive, not only to the individual, but to everyone who's under them, you know, and so rather than serving them, others 
you know, become their servants in one way or another. So what are we really looking for? And what are we trying to form and shape in the minds and the hearts of others going through seminary? And how, how miserably we are failing. The real vocation is in marriage. And so when you think of the number of divorces, what do we do as a church to really help prepare? Because we, we can't, I think there was this vision that somehow people growing up in a family and having parents who were married taught them how to be married. And that just is not true. In fact, it can often do the opposite. And so if we're ne neglecting spiritual formation, you know, throughout a person's life, how are we protect, preparing them? You know, when a priest often only has six months to prepare them, how do we how do we see and if there is any kind of spiritual or psychological, emotional impediment there? And how do we address that in a way that we're really serving a couple and preparing them? So across the board, I think the, the way that we look at formation of mind and heart is lacking, that we've moved really very far away from the gospel and from the spiritual tradition as a whole. And I'm not trying to be a meanie or, or be overly critical here, but I, I think, you know, in talking to people over the course of time, and even looking at myself as a priest over the course of time, seminary does not prepare you for a whole lot. And uh, I'm sorry, you know, if they want you to, to, you know, get a doctorate and be able to write books on theology, then turn it into, you know, make the education about that. But if it's you're seeking to form holy priests and to form them in the practical life of living out the gospel, then seminaries should be radically different. And same thing, preparing people for marriage should be radically different too. Plus to throw a couple courses in on plumbing and electrical work and how to uh, manage finances. Those are things they never teach in seminary either. Uh, there's a comment here from a couple of people. Okay. So Louise writes, even in psychology departments, they do not use psychological evaluation for selecting PhD candidates. They are selected and evaluated only on grades. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is interesting. And I, you know, what I find too, what I've found beautiful about psychoanalysis, and there's a lot that I find beautiful about it is that you have to undergo analysis yourself as part of the training. And to me, that, that links up so well with the spiritual tradition. You can't give what you don't have. How, how is it you know and can enter into the, the mystery of another person and even develop a capacity to listen in such a way, unless you've sought over the course of years to listen to what's going on in your own mind? how changeable the mind is and how changeable the emotions are, the thoughts that come out of nowhere, out of the depths of the unconscious. How can you be aware of that in others if you've never entered into that? Then you become a fixer. Like somehow you're supposed to fix a person's personality. Okay, do these couple of exercises and you'll no longer be depressed or you'll no longer be anxious. Well, in reality, you might be somewhat depressed or anxious the rest of your life, but how, how do you live, you know, with this kind of sense of purpose and identity that is greater than that? And what is the source of that depression or anxiety? And, you know, as a priest, people want you to be fixers. And it's the most dangerous thing in the world. Father, mom, miserable you know, tell me what I'm supposed to do. And priests jump down that, that hole very quickly, oftentimes. Denise writes, this monk remains silent amidst the other monk's envy. Is it ever right to speak up for yourself and explain what you are doing? Or is it always better to remain silent when confronted with the envy of others? Well, you know, we, again, we're speaking here of a particular context of the monastic life and engaging in this spiritual battle. And so 
you know, this monk was aware of his own particular struggle. And in particular, his struggle with resentment towards others in the community and his own desire to leave, to flee. And I think also they understand, understood and he understood that at times we go through trials and we're put to the test in order that virtue might grow within us. That bearing with the envy and even the hatred of his brothers in the community uh, could be something that would be deeply purifying to his own heart, that would free him from his own resentment. And uh, so it's in with uh, this particular frame and context that I think we want to understand that. I think there are other times, though, uh, where, you know, especially when it's defending the reputation of another, uh, and certainly at, at times, I think, in defending one's reputation, own reputation, uh, that were uh, a lot rests upon that, that, you know, clarifying the truth can be very important. I think what often happens to us, though, is that we are quick to be to, to be defensive. And so my answer to your question is that, yes, there are times I think that we should and would even have an obligation to speak the truth. And, and when there are falsehoods spoken against us, but I think uh, our capacity to do that can be limited when we are uh, defensive, when we are, uh, you know, we re are reactive to what other people say and do to us. And so often we will react in an angry way when somebody says something sharp to us and uh, or mean to us, and then we give it back with double barrels to them. And we sort of add to and perpetuate the issue there. And so I think when we encounter envy that we want to diffuse it, we want to respond to it with patience and love and seeking to first to understand, again, suspending the judgment, seeking to understand what is going on with that individual that they are engaging me in this way. And I don't wanna make that sound as though it's an easy thing. It can be the hardest thing in the world to hold one's tongue and to step back and to try to figure out why somebody might be reacting to me when I, I might even be only trying to do good or to be helpful or to invest myself even in, in helping them in their life. And they might not be seeing it, but what their perspective on something might be radically different and formed on their experience that we might have no understanding of why they view the world in the way they do. And, uh, and so, yes, you know, there are times that we should definitely uh, speak the truth. And, uh, and we, I would say we even have an obligation in charity to do, do so with others, but we, we need to examine our hearts closely. You know, are we being driven by resentment and our own anger and emotions? rather than, you know, than our love for the truth and our love for the other. Okay, any other thoughts? Rachel writes, yep. Did you have anything you want to add to that? Thank you, Father, that is very helpful. You're very welcome, Denise. Okay. Let's see, number three. The fathers used to say, if you undergo a temptation in the place where you are living, do not leave the place at a time of temptation. Otherwise, wherever you go, you will find in front of you what you are fleeing. But endure until the temptation passes, so that no one will be scandalized by your departure. Do not leave at a time of peace so that your withdrawal may not cause distress to those who live in that place. So a couple interesting thoughts there, you know, that never making a decision in time of desolation, uh, await, allowing the, the temptation or the source of frustration to pass, 
and to be able to think through things, especially with another, to gain perspective on how one might enter into that, this, those circumstances in such a way that one can restore peace, not only to oneself, but to the hearts of others. And if we simply run from a situation, we will carry with us those resentments. If we say, if we have to leave and make a, make a very hard decision, we want to be in the position where we, we feel and we know in our hearts that we did everything possible, that we sought to engage the other, that we sought to bring about healing. And, you know, there are certain circumstances in life where that might not be possible and where we, we have to make a decision uh, to make a change within our life. But we would want to be able to do that, not driven, again, by the temptation or simply by the emotion, but by uh, this sense of internal peace. Okay, I've prayed about this. I've sought counsel. You know, I've let time pass in order that uh, as much light can shine on the situation as possible. And, uh, and so endure until it passes so that no one be scandalized by your departure, so that you don't make an exit, you know, simply abruptly. And then he says, do not leave at a time of peace so that your withdrawal may not cause distress to those who live in that place. So it seems like it's a contradiction to what he just said in the sentences before that. But uh, I think a person, you know, doesn't want to, to leave uh, s simply because they want something different. You know, that there has to be something there that is clear, that there is a problem that exists. Uh, and that is clearly identifiable for them, but also for those for, from whom they seek counsel. That yes, there is something there that is drastically wrong, that is insurmountable, and that it would be best that you, you did leave or that your decision to leave, you can be at peace with that. And so, you know, a person just doesn't want to seem as though they are leaving willy-nilly, you know, just driven by no reason whatsoever except their own own desires for a different way of life. So interesting, isn't it, that you don't want to be driven out by temptation, but you don't want to walk out for no reason. You, you, have, you want it there to be something that's significant enough uh, to lead, lead you out or make it necessary. Uh, Rachel writes, not leaving willy-nilly, uh, going to mass, God bless. Okay, Rachel's, okay, <laughs> I get it. She's not leaving the group willy-nilly. I'm a little slow tonight. Took me a while to pick up on that one. Very good. Uh, okay, have a great mass, pray for us. Uh, so we're coming close to the end, uh, but this, this is a good one, I think, to, to, to end with, uh, because it does seem so contradictory. But again, you see that these were the first step psychologists. You know, they, they could see, you know, the, the deep contradictions within the mind and the heart and that require us to be ever so vigilant and not to be, you know, uh, driven out for these opposite, what seem to be opposite reasons, you know, in, in perfect peace or in upheaval. You want to really have it be rooted in something that is real, that has been examined, and that is necessary. Okay. All right. So stay away from internet discussions, battles. Maintain your peace and have a great week. So why don't we close as always with, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.